Hope Church. Uh, we're going to continue our study in Matthew chapter 3 as we're working our way through the book of Matthew. Um, we're going to continue with that this morning. Before we do, let's go ahead and go to the Lord again in prayer. And we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, to come this morning into your presence uh, collectively uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth, uh, to draw close to you, and to give our praise and adoration to you, God. We pray that this morning you would teach us from your word and by your spirit, uh, give us greater understanding, and help us to apply um, your word to our lives and to our community um, in obedience. And we ask these things, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. All right, so in Matthew chapter 3, so the first two chapters of Matthew um, have to do um, with the genealogy of Jesus and the, uh, the advent of Jesus coming, um, him coming to the earth in human flesh um, as a baby, um, had to do with uh, their, their um, flight down to Egypt um, to, free, to um, flee from the oppression and then to return, and then we see Jesus at the end of chapter 2 living in a place called Nazareth. Now, in chapter 3, we have a gap in time between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of about 30 years. Uh, Well, probably a little bit less than that, but that's just, you know, an approximate, uh, maybe 28 or so. But we pick up in chapter 3, And it says this, Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So let's stop there for a moment and, and you know, set this scene. Um, we know that John the Baptist, that this John, um, was related um, you know, to Jesus, um, his cousin. And so... Uh, you know, but we, we don't know much about their interactions or how close they were, you know, living together, how much they saw each other or any of those things uh, prior to this. But we do see here John the Baptist in the wilderness of Judea. Now, that's an interesting place to go and preach. You know, he's going to go and, and this is very unconventional is what we see here. You know, he doesn't go to the temple um, to, to say what he has to say for the people. He doesn't go to the marketplaces um, where all the people would be gathered every day to you know, do their business. Um, you know, he doesn't go to where the people are. He actually goes to the, where the people are not. He goes to the wilderness. And he does this very strange thing where he puts on a garment of camel's hair um, you know, that wasn't a common garment. That would be something kind of uncomfortable uh, to be wearing. So he has a camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he's eating locusts and honey. Now, if you had like, hey, you know, we're going to decide what we are going to eat. Now, honey you might eat, 
because it tastes good, right? We, we like sweet things. But if you're like, hey, I'm going to live on a diet of locusts and honey. Really, you know, that's kind of strange. That's kind of odd. Um, and yet, what we find is that people are coming out to him to hear what he has to say. You know, maybe at the beginning, it's just kind of small. Like, they're, you know, a couple people go out and see this guy. They tell others. Others of people are like, well, that's strange. And they might be going more for the curiosity, but then being compelled by the message that is given. But what I think we see overall in this, that this is a work of the Spirit of God. You know, because this isn't how, you know, humans would plan, hey, you know, we're going to get this great following of people by going to where the people aren't. And then by giving a, a kind of a harsh message, you know, that's not, um, you know, that's certainly not how it's done today. <laughs> you know, we don't see people doing, you know, this sort of, uh, sort of thing. Um, and we're not necessarily saying people should go and do this today. You know, I mean, Jesus tells us to go in, you know, to all the world, make disciples of all the nations. He tells us to go where the people are, you know, so we don't take this as a blueprint. Hey, if we want to do something now, we're going to go out in the desert, you know, only if the Lord says so. And this is, this is the key to it. This is obviously driven by God. And it's also driven to fulfill prophecy that was given back in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, in Isaiah, you have this idea of the, the construction workers on the road making the path straight back to Jerusalem, clearing the road from Babylon, to, you know, coming back from exile. Um, to make the pass clear. That was a, a picture that the people had you know, in their mind as this pathway back home. But here it's being used, and in the prophecy it's being used um, in a spiritual way to, to prepare the way for the Lord, to make the pass straight for the Messiah, the coming King, um, you know, to make ready for Him um, ultimately in the hearts and minds of the people. And so John is fulfilling this message. Um, and so he is, he is giving this message. And what is his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's, I mean, obviously he's using more words than this, but if you had to summarize his message in one phrase, this would be it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to repent? You know, the word literally means to be, you know, going one direction and to turn and to go the opposite direction. You know, it's a 180 degree turn. To be going one way can make a complete turn to go the other way. Um, and so what he's saying here is that they need to turn from the direction that they've been going. And they need to go in a direction that prepares them for the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. It is close. And so, why is he saying that? He's saying that because the king of kings is on the earth at this time that he's writing, you know, he's giving this message. Jesus is there. And wherever the king is, his kingdom is also present, right? You know, the king is, the, the kingdom follows the, the king. Especially when it comes to King Jesus, because it's less about a territorial rule and more about a, a spiritual rule. 
um, over all things and in, in all places. So where you know where Jesus is, his kingdom is. And we can also refer, you know, because the scripture, you read the Gospels, you see a lot about the kingdom. And what I think we can say about the kingdom is that the kingdom is here and now and not fully yet. Does that make sense? Like, if you have Jesus, we have Jesus with us, the king of kings is even in our midst now. And so his kingdom, there's a reign to his kingdom even among us, those who, you know, fall at his feet and worship him. His kingdom is reigning, you know, in our hearts, in our lives, and through us. But yet, it's not fully yet. And how do we know that? Well, we can look at the world around us and all the turmoil and strife and hatred and wars and famines, and we know that it's not fully yet. Because ultimate, in the ultimate reign of the kingdom of Jesus, those things will not be present. The scripture tells us he's going to, you know, wipe away every tear from our eye and there will be no more sadness. You know, there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. So that, that, that's going to be in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Fullness, in the fullness of the kingdom of Jesus. But even now, we are participating in the kingdom of heaven. Here and now. Just as it was you know, here and, and then, back when John the Baptist was preaching this, as Jesus is coming um, to begin his public ministry in preparation of going to the cross to pay for our sins. And so now, again, we have this, again, this very unusual scene, but people are coming out to him, and you know, the, the crowds are coming. They're being baptized by him in the Jordan River um, as they confessed their sins. Now, let's read in verse 7. Let's pick up here, and we're going to continue this idea, um, as the Scripture does. But it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brutal vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that, these, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you in water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff and unquench- with unquenchable fire. Okay, so now he says um, to these people that are the Pharisees and Sadducees that were coming for baptism, he said, you brutal vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now again, this is not like normal preaching. You know, people are coming for the message, and he calls them a bunch of snakes. You know, you know, it's like you low down dirty snake is kind of like our southern way of saying that, right? You, you low down dirty snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, and and I think we need to be careful here that we don't 
we don't understate what John is saying here, but we also don't overstate it. I, I think it would be wrong to say that he didn't want them to come to repentance. I think that's, that's too far. But he does need them to acknowledge who they really are. Because who are these Pharisees and Sadducees? You see, here he's not talking to people who know that they are sinners. All right? You, you, you see the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is very kind to those who recognize that they are sinners. He is very patient with them. He is very, uh, you know, he's expressing the, their ability to be saved. Okay? We see that throughout the scriptures. Um, for those who, I mean, because you don't have to tell people who, who know that they are sinners. You don't have to beat them over the head with, you are sinners. You know, and and you, it has to be a recognized identity, but it's not something that has to be you know, driven into them because they know it already. You know, and this is true in different places in the world. You know, in, when we're in, in Mexico, for example, um, if you ask someone, you know, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Many people will say, well, I'll probably go to hell. You say, why? Because, well, I'm a sinner. Right? You know, I've done a lot of things that are bad. And they just recognize that. And other cultures are among certain, maybe even with certain groups of people within a culture, as you have here, if you said, are you a sinner? They would say, no, that's not me. That's these other, you know, these other people are sinners. If you ask the Pharisees and Sadducees, are you sinners? They say, no, we're righteous before God. It's the, you know, the tax collectors are sinners because they cheat the people. The, you know, and they're right in that these other people that they're talking about are sinners, but they're failing to recognize their own sin. They're failing to recognize their, their own state before God, and they're failing to be humble. And so that's why John the Baptist has to hit them with this to get them to recognize the truth about themselves. That they are sinful. That they are low-down, dirty snakes. <laughs> is kind of what he has to, to say to them. Um, you know, and, and just to give a little bit on, on who these groups, groups are, because you know, we find that these groups, they kind of represent the religious um, Leaders, you know, of of Israel, the Sadducees more so um, in a legal position. You know, the Sadducees were. It's interesting. The Sadducees said, um, you know, we only have the scriptures. The oral tradition doesn't um, match up. It's not important, right? The Pharisees said, yes, we have the scriptures, but the oral traditions are, you know, kind of equally valid with that. You know, so they raise the elevation of that. Um, so, you know, we, be, we have a tendency to agree, agree more, you know, with the Sadducees on that. But then, when it came to the resurrection of the dead, the Pharisees said, yes, there is. And the Sadducees said, no, that there's not. We see that, you know, in the scripture, if you remember our study in Acts, if you were here with us for that, uh, we see Paul using that point of um, fighting between those two groups um, to his advantage in a couple of situations um, to kind of protect himself in some ways, but also to expose um, what they needed you know, to know about the resurrection of Jesus, and that they had a hope. Um, I like what Greg Haggs, um, 
who was an elder here for years, uh, to get you to remember which one believed in the resurrection and which one didn't, he would always say, um, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they were sad, you see. Okay, so that's your way to remember that. It's, it's very corny, but sometimes corny things are effective for how to remember them, right? So, um, yeah, so I always remember that when I see the word Sadducee. They were sad, you see. All right. Um, but he says this in verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now you're here, and you're saying you're acknowledging that you need to repent. So if you repent and are baptized you know, for this repentance, and then you go back, don't keep doing the same things you've been doing. But your life should then change. There should be a big difference between before now and you know, what, you, what you do from this point forward. Um, and then he says this, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. Because this was a point of pride. These people said, you know, we can, they can trace their genealogies back to Abraham. They said, because we're children of Abraham, then we're safe, we're secure. We don't have anything to fear. But the problem was that though they were physically descendants of Abraham, they were not spiritually descendants of Abraham because Abraham was justified by God through his faith. And so just because they were biological descendants did not mean they had the most important thing in common with Abraham. And you didn't have to be biologically related to him to have the most important thing connected with him. And he's, and, you know, he's, he's putting them in a place. He's like, don't forget, you know, you know God's all-powerful. He, he could make children from Abraham from these stones. Like, God's capable of this. Like, you know, it's kind of telling them, you know, know your place, know your role, know your position you know, before God, and don't think of yourself more than you actually are. Don't think of yourself more than you actually are. Um, but to, to think about these things correctly, and he gives them this warning, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, that is, you know, telling it how it is, is what he's doing here. He's like, you know, he's giving them a, a clear warning that God's judgment is also close. It's like the kingdom of hand is close, but with that also means the judgment of God is also close. Like those things go hand in hand because it's the rule of God. Um, and so where God is, there's also his, his, his rule, his, his judgment against unrighteousness. And so they needed to be careful. They needed to be very careful. Verse 11, as for me, I baptize you in water because of, re, of repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I am. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, a couple of things here that are important. You know, the order in scriptures is always the heart issue and then, you know, the baptism. You know, you see that throughout. Like, if there's not repentance, then being baptized in the, water, in the water doesn't mean anything. It's a symbol of the repentance. But if the heart isn't there, it's just a bath. It's just like getting the physical body wet, and it doesn't mean anything past that, right? So, as for me, um, 
you know, I baptize you in water because of repentance. Now, baptism literally means to dip into, to put into. It comes from the idea of taking a, like taking a garment and putting it into the dye. So taking, you know, the, say you take the wool from the sheep, you know, and it's white. And you take it and put it into a purple dye and the garment comes out purple, right? Because it was baptized into the dye. So baptism in the scriptures always means to put into, but it doesn't always mean to put into water. Here he says, you know, I'm going to baptize you in water. You know, it's symbolic. But one who's coming after me is mightier than I am. You know, and he says, actually, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. That's how much higher Jesus is than John the Baptist. And he knows that. He views that correctly. Because he knows he's just a man. He may be a man that's used by God. He may be you know, a prophet of God. But he's not the son of God. He's not equal to God as Jesus is. He is mightier. And it says, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. So what does that mean? There's two things. There's a, there's a choice to be made here. You know, he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It, I mean, that's the spiritual salvation to be put into the Spirit, to be sealed by the Spirit, to be put into God's family. And then there's the, to be baptized in fire is judgment. And the rest of the passage um, that we'll read here makes that clear. He'll baptize you in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean, clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is, he's using the agricultural example that all of his audience would clearly understand. You know, he's got the, when you, when you harvest the, the wheat, the chaff, the, the part that you can't eat, is there with it. And so they use the winnowing fork. It's a, you know, it's like a pitchfork sort of thing. Uh, you get multiple prongs, and you know, you take it and it tosses um, the, the, the wheat and the chaff into the air. Well, the wind helps and blows what it doesn't weigh very much away. The chaff gets blown over and the wheat falls, and that's what you collect and put into the barn. That's what you're going to use for food. The chaff, though, you've still got it left. You know, doing some woodwork this weekend and, you know, cutting all the boards, and there's this huge pile of sawdust at the end. Well, you've got to do something with that. It's not good really for a whole lot this chaff isn't really good for a whole lot so it a lot of times would just get you know burned up and so this is the way that john uses uh, uses this example to show you can either be gathered into the barn or you can be burned up with the chaff now that's also a firm message a firm message but i want to focus back for a moment on the fact that John says, you know, one who is coming after me who is mightier than I. And I think we have to recognize the importance, you know, of this. Uh, yesterday morning, we had um, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, knocked on our door. Um, and we started to talk and, you know, they said several things. They said that they were Christians. Um, you know, we're just here giving this. Um, you know, these book, booklets out and this one's on angels and for you to read and everything. I said, okay. Um, and we started talking about Jesus and who Jesus is and they clearly do not believe that Jesus is God. Like that's, um, you know, that it, it, 
they just don't. Um, they have their own translation of the Bible, John chapter 1, verse 1, where the correct translations say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Theirs says, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God, little g. Little g. Um, but they didn't change everything everywhere. So in John chapter 20, when Thomas um, sees the Lord, the resurrected Jesus, and falls before him and says, my Lord and my God, guess what? Even in their translation, capital G. Capital G. So being a monotheist, what are their options you know, for Thomas? Is he using the Lord's name in vain? Is he being blasphemous by saying that Jesus is God when he's not? Is there a problem with their translation? You know, it's one of these things. You know, they've got an issue, a, a significant issue to deal with um, there. But the big key, and the key for so many people, is that their Jesus is too small. Their Jesus is too small. Because they don't have a hope um, that is certain and secure. Because what Jesus, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but they don't believe that that was sufficient enough to believe in him for salvation. Because asking them, I said, you know, what's going to happen to you when you die? And they, you know, they believe they go to the grave, okay, and that some will be called up and risen from the grave and the rest will not. They don't believe in judgment, in a judgment, um, in a negative sense as we read here this morning. So they don't believe in that. Um, So what is Jesus actually saving you from? Question mark. Uh, But they also hope, you know, I'm I'm still, you know, working is the idea. And so, you know, know, I, I love you, and the important thing that we have to understand is that we only got one shot at this to get it right. We've got one shot. You have one life, you know, to get it right. And if your Jesus is too small, that's a very big problem. Now they said, no, we think Jesus is really big. He's just not God's like, you know, in your mind, you may think Jesus is big, but compared to what the scriptures, how the scriptures present him, your Jesus is tiny. Like Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Um, And I said, you know, why did the Jewish people want to stone, you know, want to kill Jesus? Why do they want to kill Jesus? Because he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what did, when Moses asked God at the burning bush, who should I say has sent me? What did God reply to him? Tell him, I am that I am. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he is saying that he is Jehovah, that he is Yahweh, that he is God. Like that's ultimately the issue. And if you have any view of Jesus as less than that, your Jesus is too small for me. Your Jesus is too small for you. Jesus is too small for everybody. It's not the same Jesus. And so we have to understand that our Jesus 
you know, as he is given to us in the scriptures, as John the Baptist presents him to us, as the gospels present him to us, as the entirety of the scripture present him to us, as Jesus walking on the road of Emmaus with the two disciples went through the law and the prophets to show them who he is. That your Jesus has to be as big as the scriptures say that he is. We need a Jesus who's big enough. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that as, you know, John the Baptist said here, it's, you know, I don't think we can accuse John the Baptist of a lack of love. And so when we're talking with people, and sometimes in these situations, especially, you know, when they're, when they're in what you, you, can, you have to describe as a, as a cult, because remember, a cult doesn't allow you to look at other information. Okay? That's one of the signs of a cult. So if you, anytime, next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you know, make sure you have some literature in your house. Okay? But next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you say, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take yours and I'll read it. I promise I'll read it. If you'll take mine and promise me that you'll read mine. And they never will. And the reason is because they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to take yours and to read it. Because they're not allowed to access outside information. And so what is that? That is control. That's a mind control. That's a person control. So I have sympathy for these people who have bought into that. But there's also a warning because they're going around and telling, trying to tell everybody else this same thing. That's not true and it's, that's dangerous. And so in love, we have to be firm enough to say, your Jesus is too small. You know, your, your translation of the scriptures is inadequate. You know, and we have to be willing to state the truth. We want to do so in love and in kindness, but we have to state the truth. Because what's unloving is when you know the truth and people knock on your door with something, and you know, they're voluntarily coming to have the conversation. It's unloving to not tell them the truth. It's unloving to say, just go away. It's unloving to say, well, you take yours and I'll take mine. And to have that attitude. You know, what's loving is to know the scriptures and to show them the truth from the scripture. Cool thing is, you can even do that using their inadequate translation of the Bible. So, they're going to knock on your door eventually. Be ready, <laughs> right? Be ready. Um, so, yeah, what I think we also need to take with that is, you know, motivations, whatever, but their zeal is that they're going to go knock on your door. And so that, I think that is, often, that is often a rebuke to us. That's often a rebuke to us because if we have the truth and our lives have been changed by the King of Kings, you know, I'm not saying you have to go knock on everybody's doors, but I am saying you need to be bold and loving with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be willing to take the time and the effort and the energy and to go out of your way in order to do it. That we are participating in making straight paths for the Lord. You know, and so in that 
realm. I wish we did have the zeal, you know, of the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. You know, they were kind of required to, but you know, the Mormons take two years of their lives, you know, pretty much all of them, you know, to go on their mission. Now think about, you know, we talk, we complain and say, well, we haven't reached the whole world yet. Well, imagine if every true follower of Jesus just took six months, what took a year, took two years, and went out, you know, in that high school or at some point in co- you know, right after high school or some point in college, and did that. Job would be finished by now. You know, so I think that we have to, sometimes, you know, we can still learn um, from those who are wrong in this case. Uh, we can learn something from them. And so I pray that we would all have that type of zeal. Um, and that type of zeal that you see in the New Testament, that the churches, the followers of Jesus, you know, common people through great sacrifice made it possible for us to have the scriptures today and for us to know of the love of our Savior and King. You know, it wasn't without great sacrifice that we have the, what we have today. Um, and so, the, you know, the generation that is today, the generations behind us, are counting on us to make sacrifices on their behalf. Uh, it's a sacrifice and it's an investment in the future of people and in the future of the kingdom of God. And that's where the scriptures tell us to lay up our treasures in heaven, you know, for that permanent reward uh, that we're given. So it's clear from these scriptures that there is a judgment, there is a heaven, there is a hell. These things are real. Jesus did come to save us from something. He didn't come just to be a good example for us or to make us a better version of ourselves or the best fleshly version of ourselves that we can be. He came to give us an eternal life, a new life, to make us new creations in him and to make us part of God's family. That's another deal where the, the, um, the Jesus and the God of the Jehovah Witnesses is too small. Because only 144,000 actually, you know, there's more that get, can be kind of like on the periphery. But only 144,000 get to be in the in crowd. Okay, But we have multitudes that we see in the book of Revelation from every tribe and every tongue and every nation giving praise around the throne of God. Our God is big enough for all that. He can handle more than 144,000. He can make a home and a place bigger than that. You know, He makes something that's adequate for us. And there's room at his table. There's room in his kingdom. There's room in his house for every person who would enter in. And isn't it great to be able to give that message? And that we don't have to change, you know, we don't have to change our message. You know, yes, there are people who said they're followers of Jesus and, you know, we can't fully judge all the time whether they were or won't, but, you know, I don't want to give easy passes. As John said, do works that are, go along with repentance. But we don't actually have to change our scriptures like so many groups do. You know, the, the Mormons had to change their Bible in order to let African Americans in, eventually. 
Like you can go, you know, look, you know, go look at the UGA library and take the different years of the Mormon Bibles that are available and check it out. We don't have to change our scriptures. We have to change the hearts of some people who read the scriptures, but we don't have to change our scriptures themselves. There's a big difference between those things. We have to change people's minds and hearts and attitudes and interpretations. But we don't, you know, our message from the very beginning, you know, from Abraham, before that, but from Abraham, you know, when, you know, and through your seed, once we have the diversity of nations, diversity of languages, from that point forward, and through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We don't have to change anything. especially don't have to change who's allowed in and who's not into the kingdom of God. And that's really, really important. Really important. So now we have this in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, okay, can you imagine this scene? Jesus is, is coming, and John has already said he's not worthy to untie the sandal strap of his foot. He's already said how much higher the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is than himself. And yet, Jesus comes and says, baptize me. His reaction is understandable. Wait, I need to be baptized by you. Not, you know, th- what you're asking me is what I need from you. But Jesus said to him, Permit it this time, for in this way it is, for, is for fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what does he mean by this? Um, he is worthy of further explanation. But what I would propose to you this morning is that uh, Jesus is identifying himself you know, with the nation and with all the people. And ultimately with their brokenness. With their fallenness, um, it doesn't mean that he, it doesn't mean that he himself has done anything wrong. But we see this example back um, in the scriptures in the prophets. You know, you see the the prayers of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were righteous men, and what do they say? They appropriate the sins of the nation onto themselves, and ultimately, this is what Jesus does at the cross. You know, he who knew no sin became sin, you know, for us. So in some ways he could be, you know, that's an option. In some ways he could be identifying himself um, with the people. But also it it can be the beginning, you know, it is really the beginning of his public ministry. We'll see next week um, he goes into the desert, uh, further into the desert to have the temptation to withstand that, you know, in his humanity um, as fully God and fully man. And he is as he's being prepared for the rest of his ministry, ultimately prepared for the cross. Um, So it can be that as well. Uh, But what is 
key, key important, of key importance here, it is an opportunity for the Spirit of God and the Father to, to acknowledge that this is real, that they are bearing witness. You know, who can bear witness to God but God himself? You know, who, who, can, who is worthy to give that sort of witness? The Father and the Spirit are worthy to give witness to Jesus. You know, and so when Jesus comes out, you have the dove, you know, the Spirit of God on him, the voice from heaven, you know, from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, you know, again, it's one of those deals where we don't have the word Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity, you know, in the scriptures. It's a word that we use to help us to understand. Um, but we certainly see it, you know, here. Um, you know, at the end of Matthew, we see it again. We're told to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, name there is singular, and then we're given three the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so there are these places where we see it clearly, and the word Trinity just helps us to put a word to what we understand um, about these things. Uh, it's just a theological word. It's not a biblical word. Uh, but it is a good word, nonetheless. Um, and so we see this, um, that, that this is confirmation uh, for John the Baptist, is confirmation for the people, um, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one that has come to save the people from their sins, that he is the Savior, and that he is the King, um, and that he is all of these things. Now, this baptism that we see here in Matthew chapter 3 is different from the baptism that we're going to have today in the river. Um, so the baptism that we had here was a preparation for the coming of Jesus. They, they repented, and they, were, and they were baptized in preparation for Jesus, but they haven't seen Jesus yet to believe in him. You know, it's to prepare the people as a nation you know, for this. What we see after the death and resurrection of Jesus is you know, Jesus saying to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be a disciple first, you know, the, the first step of being a disciple is really belief, you know, belief in Jesus. The second, you know, many times the second step, what we'd expect to happen soon thereafter, is baptism. Because it's a, it's a sign of obedience and it's a public um, acknowledgement, you know, of what's happened inwardly in one's heart. Saying to the world, this is what's happened to me. I have been baptized in the Spirit. Like, you know, I've been put into the family of God. I've been put into the Spirit of God. I've been sealed with the Spirit. And I w- I'm not ashamed of that. I want everybody else to know that. And so I'm publicly going to be baptized in water, okay, to symbolize that. You know, and, and we, you know, put the person, as, you know, put into the water to show the identification with the death and burial of Jesus and then coming out of the water to show the identification with his resurrection. You know, it's publicly showing this is a new person, a new creation, even though obviously that's what the person needs to be as they are going into the water. A new creation before God. Okay? So, um, we need to understand the differences 
um, between this baptism in Matthew 3 and the baptisms that we have after, you know, Jesus. Uh, that's an important shift, you know, that takes, that takes place. So what we see throughout the scriptures is they believe, throughout the book of Acts, remember we're studying the book of Acts multiple times, they believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. And that's the normal order of operations when it comes to biblical baptism. It's kind of like you remember in math, you had the phrase, you know, um, please remember my dear Aunt Sally. You know, so you had like uh, parentheses, exponents. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was going through the whole thing. I was just remembering the phrase. But there's an order of operations. I was like, why are people just throwing words out of me, of uh, math words? But anyway. Um, no. Okay. The order of operations. But the order of operations is important, right? Um, you know, and so the order of operations when it comes to baptism is important. We have belief, and then we have baptism. Simple order of operations. All right. Um, so the questions for today, two questions. One is, what have you done concerning baptism, you know, for yourself? Um, and it's cool to look around the room and see people that have been baptized as, you know, part of this church and have been baptized with us, uh, even in that same river that we're walking down to the, today. Um, so what have you done with that? And then this, the other question is, how are you um, currently, even this week, making straight paths for other people, um, f- to the Lord, how are you making straight paths for them? You know, what good are you doing, um, you know, in their lives that is helping to point them to Jesus? And I think that's always an important question because we're not neutral. You know, we're either giving people reason to move away from Jesus, or we're giving people reason to move towards Jesus. Uh, one of those two things, and so. Consider that in your friendships, in your relationships, the people who know you, the people who are close to you that don't know the Lord yet, and say, am I drawing these people closer to the Lord, or are they moving further away, or am I, maybe I'm really not moving them one way or the other, and if that's a, that could be a problem. You know, if, people are, if, if somebody is like surprised that you're a follower of Jesus in, in your place of work or in your, in your you know, hobbies or whatever it is, you know, that's a problem. Uh, because we need to be making straight paths for people and, and removing stumbling blocks for them. The scriptures in the scriptures is clear. Jesus is the stumbling block. He's the rock. You know, it's, he's, he's either the rock people stand and build on, or he's the rock that people stumble over. Unfortunately, many times, because of other stumbling blocks, people don't actually even make it to Jesus to either stand or trip. Right? Because there's other stumbling blocks along the way, you know, in perceived you know, Christians. Um, And so I think that's one of the reasons why John the Baptist went to the desert. He had to remove it from the known religious activity of his day because it, it, it was corrupted. And even people that, you know, would come in with sincerity would be corrupted by it, by it over time. And so he had to remove it you know, out from it, kind of all together to say, hey, we're doing something different over here to, re- to really repent and to know God. And so that brings another question of purification. If you are a follower of Jesus and you know him this morning as you take that bread and that cup, it's always an opportunity 
for sanctification, to be closer to the Lord, to be more purified before the Lord, and to put away the things of the, of the flesh, to put away the things of the world. Um, and more and more, hopefully, as we live our lives, God reveals more things to us that are in need of purification, that are in need of change. And our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our perspectives. And so we have that opportunity to have spiritual reality as we take the bread and the cup. We're not offering people a religious experience or a religious make you feel good about your life. Hey, we're part of this. There's so many people growing up in the South today by default Christians. Well, what does that even mean? You know, and we need a reality. Maybe in the South, we do need people standing out in the desert with camel hair, eating honey and locusts, (laughs) something like that. Maybe not that exact same thing, but we need something different that raises a flag and says, there's a Jesus to follow, but he needs to be followed as Savior and King. And he's not, I'm just telling you, he's, you know, he's not what we make him out to be so many times which is basically someone to do errands, spiritual errands, or to make stuff happen for us. He's so much more than that. Yes, he cares about our lives. He cares about the details and the little things. I'm not saying he doesn't. But when that becomes the end all in all, and we forget that he's king, we miss it. We miss who we are in relation to him. And so may God help us to conform us today. Lord to Jesus. So Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the privilege to take the bread and the cup and we give thanks for it now, Lord. Um, as we do so, please purify our hearts and minds. Help us we pray in all things to honor you, to glorify you, to lift your name on high. Lord, we're thankful um, to celebrate um, baptism today, to celebrate your power and your love and your grace in our lives. We pray, Lord, that in these coming days and weeks and months, we would see more people coming to true repentance, to faith, um, to walking with you, dear Jesus. that more disciples will be made. So, Lord, we ask you to prepare hearts. We thank you for the work you're doing even now in our community, in our city. And so we pray for Athens. We pray for all in this world to at least um, have opportunity to know you, to know your name. So help us, we pray, dear God. Lord, we pray... um, that the rest of our time would be led by the Spirit, would honor you, and we would all seek to give you the glory you are worthy of, dear God. And we praise you in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.